This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good afternoon and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Well, we try our best to make healthy choices during the holidays, but we're bound to celebrate a little too much. And sometimes that leads to gallbladder problems. Today, we welcome a very special guest, a masterful surgeon whom I trust and greatly admire and who has earned the utmost and well-deserved respect of her colleagues and patients. Dr. Karen Chanaki, the Francis E. Rosado Professor of Surgery at Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University, who's also the Director of the Division of General Surgery, the Director of the General Surgery Residency Program, the Vice Chair for Clinical Operations, and the Associate Dean of Graduate Medical Education in the Surgical Division. And to boot, aside from being a great role model to students and residents as an accomplished surgeon and a devoted mother, she's an exceptionally nice person. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, Marianne. Pleased to be here. Well, I think it might help our listeners to start with some really basic terms. What is the gallbladder, its function, and where does it live? Sure. So if I can ask your listeners to just imagine their abdomen and in the right upper abdomen tucked underneath their rib cage is the liver. And the liver is a big three-dimensional organ that has a number of jobs that are vital to your body's function. Liver does a whole bunch of different things, but one of the things that it does is it makes bile, which is a liquid that helps your food digest in your intestinal system. So the liver makes the bile, it puts it through a whole bunch of small ducts or tubes that then drain into a bigger tube called the common bile duct, and that tube connects the liver down to the intestine. If you've ever vomited green slimy stuff, that's bile. That's the liquid that we're talking about. Now, some of that bile, instead of going right into the intestine, gets stored in the gallbladder. And the gallbladder is a little storage sac, smaller than your fist, that um, is off right in the middle of the liver. And it's connected to this big tube that connects the liver down to the intestine through a smaller tube. And about 30% of the bile that your liver makes gets stored up in the gallbladder. 
it sits there in the gallbladder waiting to be used. And when you eat typically fatty meals, your brain signals the gallbladder to squeeze and push that bile down into the bile ducts into the intestine where digestion can then go on normally. Mm -hmm. So your bile is being stored in your gallbladder. Your gallbladder has a muscular coat that contracts and pushes that bile to the intestine. And this goes on all day, every day. And what's interesting is, like, I love the way you explain that. I tell my patients, think of your liver. It looks almost like a horseshoe crab. And the gallbladder lives on its underbelly, and it acts as a garage. We make the bile, and it swims, hopefully, from north to south. We'll talk about that later. Um, and its job is to break down fat. But it actually, as you say, the gallbladder looks like a little basting bulb, and it contracts or it squeezes that bile into the bowel so that when your food leaves your stomach and it travels through the small intestine, it gets broken down into molecules. Your intestine can't absorb uh, molecules of ham and cheese and bread. It, it absorbs molecules of fat and protein and carbs because of juices like bile. So what are gallstones then? They're, how do they happen? And let's talk about what they are for starters. Sure. So one of the components of bile is cholesterol. And that cholesterol tends to crystallize a little bit in the gallbladder. And those little crystals of cholesterol can almost act like sand in an oyster and become a nidus for a gallstone hmm. to form the same way a pearl forms in an oyster. So those little crystals um, get layers and layers of more cholesterol on top of them and they become stones. And patients can have hundreds of very small stones in their gallbladder they can have a few stones that are about the size of a, a pebble, or they can have a giant stone that can be as big as a ping pong or a golf ball. So gallstones come in all different shapes and sizes. They're, they can all be silent, meaning they don't cause problems, or they can start to cause problems. And I think you and I are going to talk about that in a few minutes here. But mm -hmm. um, patients will always ask me, well, does it matter if I have one gallstone or a hundred? I tell them it actually doesn't matter whether you have one or a hundred. Although in some ways, the smaller the stones, the more trouble they can cause because of the things that they can get out I, of and into. I, I was just going to say the gallbladder empties, it stores the, the bile. And when it gets a knock on the door, hey, there's some fat coming through or just food. It, it actually responds every time we eat, uh, we would say as well. But um if there's a stone that leaves the gallbladder and gets stuck in the channel or the tube, um, that muscular gallbladder is going to bench press to get the bile past the blockage. And that's what causes pain we'll talk about. But um, it's almost better to have a ping pong size gallstone because it's not going to fit into the channel. So rejoice if you have big gallstones because they're less likely to cause a problem. So that's, I guess, the next question. If somebody has gallstones, do they always cause illness or can they just sit there? Absolutely not. The vast majority of people will have, will have that have gallstones will never have a problem from them. So about 10% of Americans have gallstones. So that's millions and millions of people who have gallstones. But of those 10% of Americans who have gallstones, only about 10 to maybe 20% will ever go on to having problems. So it's a small fraction of the total number of people who have gallstones that ever need to get their gallbladder addressed in any Thank way, goodness. shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Yes, or else all I would be doing all day long is taking out gallbladders if everybody well, had stones had trouble. I, when the day comes, I'm coming to you. Um, Karen, so I guess we break it down into those who have symptoms and those who don't have symptoms. So we, we rejoice and we're happy for people whose Gallstones sit there like freckles on their skin. They don't do anything. It's just a badge of courage. And for those people who do have symptomatic gallstones, they can be 
sort of friendly, benign symptoms or symptoms that cause really complicated situations. Let's talk about the typical uncomplicated gallstone disease, a stone decides to travel and what happens? Sure. So as you mentioned, gallstones can cause a wide range of symptoms. The classic symptoms, though, are pain right underneath the breastbone, in the center of the abdomen, right underneath the breastbone. And it's patients describe a really severe, sharp pain. Um, women who have had labor pain will tell me it's as bad or worse than labor pain. And men will often think they're having a heart attack because I think men have been trained to think more about their heart. And because it's right in the center of their abdomen, close to the chest, they think about heart attack. So it's not subtle. The classic gallbladder symptom is the kind of pain that stops you in your tracks, you know, you bend over, really hurts, can often be associated with nausea or vomiting. The pain can also travel into the right upper abdomen and sort of lodge underneath the rib cage and even go into the right shoulder or back. So I think the important thing is it's not subtle. You won't be wondering if there's something going on with your gallbladder with your first attack. It's usually pretty severe and you know something's not right. Mm -hmm. That and episode can last anywhere from a few minutes to several hours. And despite the name biliary colic, colic colicky pain we think of as rising and falling or coming and going. This just stays there until the stone moves out of place. As you say, it might it might just be that intense pain for hours. So it's interesting that we call it biliary colic. Um, and we talked about triggers. Fat is the reason that bile is made, but we know that people who can't eat, let's say they're on intravenous uh, feeding or TPN, total parental nutrition. Mm -hmm. Let's say somebody is in a coma and they're in intensive care and they're not eating. Mm -hmm. The gallbladder uh, is still, the liver's still making bile, it gets stored in the gallbladder, but it might become stagnant and puddle. And those people are more likely to get gallstones as well because they're just not eating anything. Um, so I guess the point is if you have belly pain, but you've eaten a fat-free meal, don't think that it it's automatically not your gallbladder uh, rebelling. Um, so how does the pain come about? What causes that pain? So typically, if we're talking about the earliest type of symptoms, that biliary colic symptom, it's because a gallstone has rolled into position and it's blocking the outflow tract of the gallbladder. So the gallbladder is getting signals from the brain to squeeze and empty that bile into the intestine. And it's trying to do that, but there's a stone blocking the outflow tract. So it's squeezing and pushing and it can't get the bile out. So your body interprets that as pain. Mm -hmm. um, and like we said, pain typically in the center of the abdomen or off to the right side, sometimes into the back or in the shoulder. Um, the pain will relieve as soon as the gallstone rolls out of the way. So in that pushing, the stone will roll out of the way and the pain will be relieved. That could, like I said, that could take a couple of minutes or it could take a couple of hours. Or sometimes the pain is just unremitting and those patients have to get to an emergency room. And once they're in the emergency room, we typically give the patient an IV narcotic medication that relaxes the gallbladder, causes it to stop contracting, and then the pain will stop. Mm -hmm. So the gallstone either decides to just give up and say, okay, I'm going to just go back into the, the sac, the, the basting bulb, and just relax and hang out with the other gallstones, or it tries to push forward. And if that happens, then we might see complicated gallstone disease. So biliary colic, the stone blocks the mouth or the opening of the gallbladder, and it sometimes falls back into place, and we say, phew, pain's gone. What if it, it decides to travel into the tube? What can happen there? Yep, so if the stone actually drops into the tube that connects the liver down to the intestine, there's a couple of more complicated situations that can arise. That stone will typically drop all the way down to the bottom of that tube, right where it joins the intestine. 
And right where it joins the intestine, the tube from the pancreas that carries all the amylase and lipase and digestive enzymes of the pancreas joins in at that same area. So the stone will typically lodge right there because there's, again, another little muscular cuff right there that sort of controls how bile and pancreatic juice enter the intestine. The stone will typically drop there, lodge there, and then unfortunately, the bile will back up into that tube and clog the liver. So the patient will then notice symptoms of jaundice. They may notice that their skin and eyes yellow. They may even get itchy if they reach a certain level of jaundice. And the pain then is very, un that pain comes on and just stays. That's a pain that most patients cannot manage at home. They need to get to an emergency room for help managing that pain. Mm -hmm. Now, that's if the bile duct tube from the liver to the intestine is blocked. If we if the stone blocks the pancreatic tube more, the, pancre the pancreas can react. The pancreas does not like being clogged. No. The pancreas no. tube is clogged. The pancreas gets very angry and it starts to spill its enzymes outside of the pancreas into the pancreas tissue itself. And that's called gallstone pancreatitis. And there, the pancreas starts to almost auto-digest itself. So there's a lot of inflammation, edema, and fluid that builds up around the pancreas. And those patients will typically have severe back pain because mm -hmm. your pancreas actually sits closer to your back than to your front. So those patients will have more predominantly back pain. Again, an unremitting pain mm -hmm. that can't be managed at home. So I want to paint that picture again for our listeners. We'll put the liver at the top of I-95. And there's a tube that exits the liver and makes a right turn. So exit one is out of the liver. Exit two, a little duct pops into the gallbladder to store some of the bile. And they form together into a common hepatic duct or a common duct. And then that joins the pancreatic duct. So if a gallstone leaves the gallbladder and it just goes into exit two, it just blocks the gallbladder and you get acute cholecystitis or a hot gallbladder, which hurts, that's bad enough. If it travels a little bit farther down onto I-95 and blocks the liver and the gallbladder, you get a hot gallbladder. And in the ER, we look really smart because the liver blood studies are abnormal. And we say, oh, we got to get this out fast because it's blocking liver, the liver's uh, capabilities. And that's not good. If it travels farther down I-95, it could pick up exits one and affect the liver, two, the gallbladder, and three, the pancreas. And acute pancreatitis is not our friend. People can become, that can be life-threatening, yes, if it gets really yes. ahead of people. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, uh, gallstone pancreatitis can be life-threatening. So that's really important that patients get to the hospital and get treated. And that's why you say to people, your, your banner comment to people is, if you know you have gallstones, because you've had an ultrasound for a different reason, we know you have gallstones in there and you have severe pain, do not wait because it could really uh, make you so seriously ill. And I think it's good for our listeners to realize when people hear pancreatitis, I think a lot of times they're afraid people will accuse them of drinking too much alcohol. Is it not gallstone pancreatitis, the number one cause of pancreatitis? Yeah, so there's a number of different causes of pancreatitis, but certainly in the United States, gallstones is the number one cause. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, alcohol can also cause pancreatitis. Um, certain medications can cause pancreatitis. Um, certain abnormalities in your blood, very high calcium, things like that can cause it. But far and away, the gallstones are the most common culprit. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Important information for our listeners. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Karen Janaki. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. 
At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like, how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to healthcare. Learn how we are working to make healthcare more equitable at gene.com/askbiggerquestions. Welcome back to your radio doctor. We're learning very important information about gallstones from Dr. Karen Janaki from Jefferson. Karen, we talked about classic symptoms of biliary colic and the causes of the pain. That little gallbladder is contracting. And I, and I, I know the thing I share with my patients is picture Thanksgiving Day and you take your basting bulb and you want to get some of the juice out of the pan and, and uh, cover the turkey. If you suction up a piece of solid turkey in the, I guess, the the stick part, the uh, baster, then you push down with the, the basting bulb, it's harder to get the juice through. That's the picture of a gallstone, making it harder for your gallbladder to shoot the bile where it's supposed to go. And that's the pain you feel. That muscular little gallbladder is saying, help. And the, if the gallstone falls back into place, so be it. But it can cause all these other complications. So we said it can either block the liver. And the, the clue in the ER is that the liver blood studies are abnormal. Pancreatitis is another worry. One other issue can be gallstone ileus. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, so gallstone ileus is fortunately pretty rare. And that's one of the rare complications of gallstone disease where it's caused by much larger gallstones rather than smaller ones. And in that, a large gallstone is laying in the gallbladder, which um, lays against the duodenum, which is the first portion of the intestine off the stomach. And years of chronic inflammation and that stone irritating the wall of the gallbladder can eventually cause it to erode through the gallbladder into the duodenum. And then that large stone will just tumble down the intestine. And it's usually okay until it gets to the very last part of the intestine where the intestine enters the colon. And there, there's something called the ileocecal valve, which is a small valve that controls how quickly fluid goes from the small intestine into the colon. When that stone tumbles all the way through 20 plus feet of small intestine and hits that valve, sometimes the bowel can't push it through that valve. So the stone will sit there and cause a bowel obstruction. So it's a pretty rare cause of a bowel obstruction, and it's a complication of large gallstones. Um, we, if we see gallstone ileus, we typically see this in older patients who weren't recognizing their gallstone symptoms and have probably been having some gallbladder trouble for quite some time and just didn't recognize it or did, couldn't 
articulate it in a way that people understood. And then now this gallstone is just eroded through and gotten loose. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So we talked about typical symptoms, atypical symptoms. Maybe people have gallstone issues, like you say, maybe somebody didn't interpret it as a gallbladder issue. Sure. So some other symptoms that can come along with uh, gallstone disease are bloating, belching, just a generalized abdominal discomfort. And interestingly, I'll often treat patients for gallstone disease and they'll tell me postoperatively that their heartburn's gone away. So I think sometimes what people interpret as heartburn trouble is actually gallbladder trouble. So that's sort of a nice um, side bonus is sometimes when we get the gallbladder out, a lot of these heartburn type symptoms or or Mm -hmm. GI upset type symptoms go away and patients can actually come down off some of their other medications. Mm -hmm. So as you said so clearly, your liver lives in your right upper belly, kind of protected by the football helmet known as the rib cage because it's a soft organ. But we say right upper belly pain reflects liver or gallbladder issue, but right dead center the, the, we talk about your abdomen and the soft part of your belly, the, t- the top middle uh, part of your belly, which we call the epigastric area. I call that the Bermuda Triangle because if you have pain there, it can be your gallbladder. It could be an ulcer inside your stomach. It could be a part of your colon travels, the bridge over the river Kwai, <laughs> the, the, the colon travels there. So oftentimes when somebody, uh, when we think it's gallstones and they need surgery, I will ask them to have upper GI endoscopy just to make sure that I'm not putting my, all my eggs in the gallstone basket because what if they happen to have two issues? Maybe they're taking a daily baby aspirin. So I usually ask people to have upper endoscopy before they commit to surgery or, you know, they're going to have the surgery anyway, but let's make sure that because the symptoms can be a little nebulous or more inclusive, uh, want to make sure that we're, we're thorough there. Um, risk factors. Do we know why women are more likely to have gallstones than men? So for women, they're more at risk for gallstones because of hormones. Um, unfortunately, estrogen. Oh, darn hormones. Yep. Estrogen <laughs> causes some, um, in, can cause some cholesterol changes. And again, the root of gallstones for most Americans is cholesterol. So anything that alters your cholesterol um, in your bile will cause you to form gallstones. And for women, certainly estrogen can alter your cholesterol. Uh, Mm -hmm. So women, especially if they've had a pregnancy in the past, are more at risk for gallstones. Uh, Being obese, unfortunately, can change your cholesterol profile, and that can put you at risk for gallstones. So that's why obesity often goes hand in hand with gallstones. Patients who have certain liver diseases. Um, have a hard time metabolizing their cholesterol. So they'll show up with more cholesterol in their bile, which will put them at risk for gallstones. So any condition that you have that makes the imbalance of cholesterol in your bile more pronounced or at risk for gallstones. Now, I always warn patients, it's not because you have high cholesterol. So it's not that every patient that has high cholesterol is going to have gallstones. It's just certain disease conditions cause that cholesterol ratio in the bile to be abnormal mm-hmm. and put them at risk. Yeah, because the bile has other ingredients. It has the cholesterol, it has mucin, um, some proteins. Yes. So if there's too much cholesterol on that triad, that balance is off. That makes sense. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me is we all, you know, in GI, we see people with fat in their liver, which can be from uh, obesity, but it can also be from precipitous weight loss. I tell people this all the time. Yeah. A good, healthy plan to lose weight is gradual just because you'll be able to sustain it better, but also you can hurt your liver if you lose weight too precipitously. And if you go through rapid weight loss, we know, I always said it was like less than a thousand calories a day, or I should say fewer, fewer than 800 calories a day, or after gastric bypass surgery, you're at risk for uh, gallstones. So 
just pe- keep that in your, the back of your mind if, uh, if you're in either of those situations. So let's talk about how we evaluate for gallstones and how we decide if, in fact, stones are causing the issues and uh, what tests do we do. So once your doctor and you've decided that your symptoms may be caused by gallstones, the most likely test that he or she is going to order for you is an ultrasound of your right upper quadrant or your right upper abdomen. And it's the same type of ultrasound that they use to look at babies in utero. So it's a non-invasive test. Um, they'll put a little bit of cold jelly on your belly and an ultrasound probe and press around and look. And they can get a great view of the gallbladder. It's actually my favorite test to look at for gallbladder abnormalities. They can tell a number of things through the ultrasound. They can tell whether if there's stones. So the presence or absence of stones can be figured out on that. They can look at the wall of the gallbladder, and if the gallbladder wall is thickened, that'll sometimes suggest that you've got some chronic inflammation or even acute inflammation consistent with infection going on with the gallbladder. They can also look at those bile ducts between the liver and the intestine, and if those tubes are dilated or bigger than normal, that's a suggestion that stones may have gotten out of the gallbladder. They can look at... um, the liver itself and see if those tubes have gotten big all the way up into the liver. So it's a really nice test to look at the gallbladder. So if you have a patient who has convincing symptoms of gallstones or gallstone disease, and they have a normal ultrasound, what do you do? Do you, if they, if their um, symptoms have subsided temporarily, do you say, let's repeat the ultrasound? Sometimes that increases pickup rate. Yes. If you repeat it, sometimes gallstones can hide near the mouth. And if you repeat it, they've shifted. What do you do next? Sure. So if I'm really sure that this is gallstone disease, um, sometimes what can make the the gallstones hard to see is if the gallbladder is contracted. So if it's squeezing down on itself when they happen to be doing the ultrasound, it may make it difficult to look for, to find stones in that situation. So as long as the patient's okay, that episode is resolved, we can always repeat the ultrasound. If a repeat ultrasound doesn't show any evidence of stones, but I'm still convinced this sounds like gallbladder disease, there's another condition called biliary dyskinesia that can be picked up through another type of test. So sometimes the reason you have gallbladder symptoms isn't because of stones, although most of the time it is. It's almost always because of gallstones. But if you're one of those patients who has classic symptoms or symptoms very concerning for gallstone disease and your ultrasound is negative, you could have something called biliary dyskinesia. And that's a problem where the gallbladder doesn't function properly. So as we've talked about, when you eat, the gallbladder muscles squeeze and squeeze that gallbladder so the bile empties into your intestine. And when it does that, it should be a pretty good squeeze. Most of the bile in the gallbladder should empty the gallbladder and enter the tubes into the intestine. For some patients, when the gallbladder is getting signals to squeeze after a meal, it just kind of shrugs. It doesn't push effectively the way that it should. And that It just sits there and doesn't do much. And for reasons that aren't entirely clear, that can often mimic the same type of pain that patients with gallstones get. So if I have a patient who I really think has biliary or gallstone disease, but all of their studies say that there's no evidence of gallstones, I'll send them for what's called a HIDA scan. Mm -hmm. And that's a nuclear medicine study. And in that study, our nuclear medicine colleagues will put an IV in the patient's arm and inject a radioactive dye that gets taken up by the liver and fills the gallbladder. And after it fills the gallbladder, they'll ask the patient to either eat something that's fatty or they'll actually give an injection of CCK, which is the hormone that your brain releases to tell the gallbladder to squeeze. And under the nuclear medicine devices, they'll actually watch the gallbladder squeeze and they want to see that it's pushing out more than 30% of what was in it. If it's not pushing that much out, then they'll tell the patient they've got something called biliary dyskinesia. And that's an indication to take to treat the gallbladder. Um, even though there's no gallstones. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting test because patients often tell me they'll come back and say, you know, as soon as they gave me that hormone or as soon as I ate something fatty, I got the gallbladder pain. Yes. And that's a great indication that this is their gallbladder causing a problem. So it's pretty neat that we can sort of mimic the uh, the journey of bile from liver through gallbladder. And if the gallbladder misbehaves, we can document it with a study and watch the dyskinesia, DYS, of course, means not exactly normal. And kinesia, kinetics, means motion, not exactly normal motion of the gallbladder. And if the flow isn't there and to boot, it brings on the person's discomfort. It's pretty convincing. I love uh, Hyda scans. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to be partners with uh, just a, a brilliant man. And back in the day, sometimes, and I see sometimes it's still done, but I can't imagine too often, when we drop an NG tube or a tube that goes through the nose, uh, past stomach into duodenum, and we, we study under the microscope uh, because people don't always have gallstones. They might have sludge, which is teeny, teeny, weeny, like a millimeter or just sandy, crystally kind of uh, abnormal bile that can can just throw its hat in the ring and, and cause issues too. But fortunately, that's not too often. We in GI do a test with an endoscope where we fill the ducts, the ones we talked about, the ones that enters the gallbladder, empties the liver, and the pancreas, called an ERCP. We won't torture people with all of those letters. I mean, do you ever do that? Are there cases that you ever ask for that study before surgery? Sure. So certainly if we have a patient that we think has a stone blocking the bile duct or blocking the pancreas duct, sometimes they need to be treated very quickly to relieve that pressure. And our GI colleagues, especially here at Jefferson, are just fantastic. They're very skilled ERCP advanced endoscopy doctors, and they can go down with an EGD scope, the same kind of scope that you use to look for ulcers. Um, and they go down, they find the bile duct, they can actually cut it open a little bit bigger and pull that stone out. The other time that we may use ERCP is in a more elective setting where, again, if we think the patient's having classic gallbladder problems, but we a HIDA scan is normal, ultrasound is normal, they can go and take a sample of the bile to look for those crystals or sludge that you right. just mentioned. Yeah. And if a patient has crystals or sludge, that would be another reason to consider treating the gallbladder. Mm-hmm. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back to learn how we treat gallstones. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Hi, I'm Rob Strauber, Director of Intervention, one of your addiction experts from Recovery Centers of America. Today, I'm here to talk to you about intervention. Intervention is a very important step if your loved one is hesitant to access treatment or if you're worried that your loved one's unwilling to get help. It is important that you speak with one of our certified intervention specialists here at Recovery Centers of America. Having a certified intervention professional leading your team really helps the family with guidance with education, with an opportunity to take a look at 
how we can best help your family system and your loved one access the treatment that they need and that they deserve. Having a certified intervention professional also helps the family system in the fact that the professional guiding your team is up to date with the most up-to-date information, going-ons within the industry with best practices on how we can help the family system help their loved ones access the help that they need and deserve. As you begin 2023 in a fresh beginning, reach out to Recovery Centers of America if you or one of your loved ones needs help with drugs or alcohol. Call 877-938-0618 or visit recoverycentersofamerica.com slash Devin. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. Also, RSVP at rcaacademy.com for our free virtual continuing education course on intervention on January 12th. That's rcaacademy.com. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor and all things gallstones and gallbladder uh, disease. Karen, we talked about how we look for evidence to determine that the gallstones are the cause of a patient's belly pain or jaundice or whatever they present with. One of the things my patients ask is, can you do a CAT scan? But CAT scans, maybe 10% of gallstones, am I right, have enough calcium to show up on CAT scan. So, and and the, the great thing about ultrasound is it's not radiation exposure. So it it's always makes us happy that we can... Uh, figure out the cause of pain or um, uh, presentation without using radi- radiation. Let's talk about how we treat gallstones because you really, um, I think I was probably in training. I learned how to do laparoscopy myself. I did many cases, but not to to operate, to diagnose or do liver biopsies. Tell us if you would, if a person needs surgery, how do you determine if somebody needs surgery 
and what are the options? Sure. So certainly if someone is having the symptoms that we discussed earlier and has gallstones, mm-hmm. that's a clear cut indication to get their gallbladder out. The other um, indications would be if they develop those other complications like jaundice, um, pancreatitis, um, those vague, more vague abdominal pains that we've talked about, if you've ruled out all other causes. Nowadays, gallbladder surgery is so safe, it's very reasonable to consider taking a gallbladder with gallstones out. So if you and your doctor have decided that the cause of your abdominal discomfort and GI symptoms is related to your gallbladder, the best way to treat it is with taking the gallbladder out. That's called a cholecystectomy. Patients will often ask, well, can't you zap the stones? Can't you laser them? Can't you do something different? You really can't. Um, if you try to break up the stones like you do with kidney stones, fragments will be left behind and those fragments will be just as troublesome as the original stones were. There's medications that you can take to try to dissolve the stones, but that will only work if there's a, only a few stones and if they're small. And unfortunately, as soon as you stop taking those medications, the stones will typically come back. And those medications are hard to take. They cause a lot of symptoms that patients just can't tolerate, specifically a lot of abdominal pain and diarrhea. So unfortunately, those medications are just as bad as the gallstones themselves. So as long as you're in good shape in surgery, you don't have any prohibitive risks for surgery, most likely we'll recommend laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which is a laparoscopic removal of the gallbladder. And that's the Star Wars version. I guess it's not so fashion forward anymore. It's become more routine where you make the small incision near the navel and you introduce a, uh, a probe and you're able to visualize in a second. Tell us a little bit about more about the uh, technique, if you would. Sure. So you do have to come to the operating room. Patients will always ask if this can be done anyplace other than an operating room. And it can't. It needs to be done in an operating room. And you do have to be completely asleep for the surgery. So it does require a general anesthesia. So we'll work with our anesthesia colleagues. You'll have a general anesthesia. So um, you'll be completely asleep. We'll... Um, get you all set up in the operating room and then we make a small incision through your belly button and we put a small camera scope that's mounted onto a camera into your abdomen. And through that scope, we can see everywhere in your abdomen, but for gallbladder surgery, we'll be looking specifically in the right upper abdomen. And then we make three very small incisions in the right upper abdomen. Each of these measures about five millimeters in length. And through those five millimeter incisions, we introduce long, thin instruments that enable us to pick up the gallbladders. Because remember, as you said, the gallbladder is laying underneath the liver. So we literally have to pick it up and push it up so we can see it. And then we'll dissect out that tube that connects the gallbladder down to the bigger liver tube and also the small artery that runs to the gallbladder. So we'll Mm. free up those two parts of the gallbladder anatomy. And then we use titanium clips to secure those. So we put titanium clips on those, we cut the artery and we cut the duct, and then we have a special cautery device that we use to take the gallbladder off the liver because the liver is attached to the, the liver and the gallbladder are attached to one another. And once we get the gallbladder separated from the liver, we put it in a little bag and we pull it out right through your belly button. It swishes right out of there. It's incredible. Um, you make it sound so easy, Karen. Um, well, it's it's pretty standard surgery. It's um, it's one of the most common surgeries done in the United States. So any general surgeon will typically spend a lot of their time in the operating room doing gallbladder surgery. A straightforward gallbladder case can be done in 20 minutes to a half hour. That's incredible. Um, patients can usually go home the same day mm-hmm. um, and get back to usual activities within just a day or two. I really encourage my patients to be up and walking the same day and sure. next day. They can return to a normal diet within a day. 
And um, most patients nowadays with advances in pain uh, management in the operating room and local anesthetics, we can even get patients uh, through the surgery without any narcotic pain medication, just mm -hmm. some Tylenol postoperatively. And I think that's the beauty of laparoscopy. If we can treat the person and not give them the big zipper, that's what was so hard for people to recuperate from before. But keep in mind, uh, listeners, it's still major surgery. We're still removing an organ. And uh, you, there's a there's a paradigm of uh, re-entry into activity. It's a shame that instead of using titanium, you can't use kryptonite clips. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be very cool, but it's titanium. <laughs> Work on that. Work on that, Dr. Chanaki. So there are times, though, when we can't depend on, and, and as a compliment to you, because I, I've worked with you for years, no such thing as routine. You approach every case as though it could be difficult. Mm -hmm. It's not over till it's, it's over yeah. and you can't predict whether something's going to be easy or not. So I, I just want to say that that's why I send so many patients to you because I trust you. Um, but all in all, you do have general anesthesia. That's what I think is one of the big messages that people know it's still, it's still surgery and, uh, OR to keep it sterile and all those good things. So uh, we talked about the option of laparoscopy. Some people need to have the open their belly open with the more traditional open incision. When does that happen? So fortunately, nowadays, it's very unusual. Um, if I meet a patient in the office, I'll tell them I'm 99.9% .9 sure I can get their gallbladder out minimally invasive or using the laparoscope. It's very rare for a patient coming in from home to have surgery to need to have their abdomen open through a big right upper abdominal incision. Sometimes when we meet patients in the hospital who are having a more acute problem, they're having cholecystitis or infections of the gallbladder, they're having um, the pancreatitis that we talked about, that can cause a lot of inflammation around the gallbladder that can make it difficult to do it laparoscopically. Although even now, patient, even the sickest patients with terrible gallbladder disease that we meet in the hospital, most of the time we're still able to do this minimally invasive. It's very rare to have to make an open incision to take out the gallbladder nowadays. But if we so have somebody, to, okay. yep, if we have to, it'll be a big incision underneath the right upper, right upper abdomen, right underneath the ribs. It's a m much bigger incisions, more painful recovery. Um, but the only reason we're opening is because it's what's safer. So right. I always tell patients, if we have to open, it's because it's what's safest for you. So if somebody, as you've mentioned, a good point, if somebody has a really, and I'm not being uh, facetious, a hot gallbladder, it's infected. It's what we call gangrenous. It's really uh, low blood flow from the infection, really a uh, hot tamale. Sometimes you make an incision because you want to go in and just wash the belly and get all the bacteria out because they have peritonitis, which means the lining's inflamed. It can make them very sick. Um, or if somebody, I guess... Uh, you know, we were talking about the option of using medication, which is not ideal. It's hard to take. If somebody's in intensive care because they've had a serious heart attack or, or they have the pancreatitis, um, you would give them medication and hope that it sort of helps. Or if somebody does have a stone that's stuck and you just can't dislodge it with ERCP. I mean, ERCP, uh, just to revisit a few minutes ago, back in the day, we hope we could do it with a laparoscope, but we would do the open, bigger surgery, open incision, if there were stone stuck. Now, as you say, with the endoscope, pre-op, we could go in, make a little incision, stone falls out, but that's not always the case. So I guess once in a while, if you have a stone that just won't cooperate with our scope removal, 
but that's pretty rare, as you say, which is which is music to everybody's ears, really. Yeah. Now, really, most gallstone disease we can manage minimally invasive through either a combination of endoscopy with our GI colleagues and sure. surgery, or mm-hmm. surgery alone, because our our minimally invasive techniques have just gotten so much more sophisticated over the last twenty years. True. Risks of surgery. So there's always risks to surgery, unfortunately. Um, the risks to this particular surgery, bleeding is rare. Every surgery carries with it a risk of bleeding, but sure. it's unusual to have bleeding that would require a transfusion. So it's very unusual to need a transfusion and have bleeding to that extent. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime we make an incision in your skin, we unfortunately expose you to the risk of infection. Your skin is your natural barrier to protect you from infection. And we have to make an incision in your skin to get into your abdomen. So that does... Um, put you at risk for infection. We do give a dose of antibiotics right before we operate. Um, You do not require any antibiotics afterward. So bleeding, infection, but by far the most important risk of surgery is when we're operating, the most important thing we need to do is make sure we identify the correct tube to clip and cut. Mm. We want to make sure that we're only clipping and cutting the tube that connects the gallbladder to the bile duct. We do not want to injure the bile duct itself, which is the tube that connects the liver down to the intestine. So most of our time in the operating room is spent double, triple checking, making sure that the only tube we're clipping and cutting is the cystic duct, the little tube that connects the gallbladder to the bile duct. Because if we injure that bigger tube, the common bile duct, that's a big problem. Um, That requires a lot of um, endoscopy and interventional radiology help managing that problem and often requires a second big surgery to go back in and reconstruct that tube. So that's, that's the biggest risk that I warn every patient. Now, that, while that's the biggest risk, it's fortunately the most rare thing to go wrong. So sure. if you look at all surgeons across the United States who do gallbladder surgery, the risk of a bile duct injury is less than 0.4%. Good to know. One of the things that I see in the GI office is uh, somebody will have reflux and they go and the drugstore and they buy uh, acid reducing medication and they'll double it and they'll take it and they'll cut out their caffeine and all, and they still have heartburn. And if I know that they've had their gallbladder removed a month ago, five years ago, I know to say, you know what, let's try a medication called caraphate because once that garage is removed, that gallbladder, you still have the liver making bile. It sends it down I-95 and we can't leave 30% of it sitting in the, the gallbladder. So it, it could go forward or if it builds up, it can go back into the stomach. And as you said earlier, if you vomit and there's some green kind of stuff in there, Ghostbuster green slime, um, it's bile and bile has its own. That's why I called this segment when I sent out our newsletter, the unmitigated gall of stones. You know, when people say, the goal of that person, you know, it is caustic and it tastes terrible, but it can really irritate the lining of the stomach or esophagus. So if you've had your gallbladder out and you have reflux and it's not responding to the usual medications with the, the medication we use is inert. It just lines it and hundred percent. It doesn't interfere with other drugs. Good to know. Quick last question. Does the presence of gallstones increase a person's risk for gallbladder cancer? So the risk of gallbladder cancer is very low. um, And the only people who get gallbladder cancer are people who have gallstones. So you have to have gallstones to get gallbladder cancer, but gallbladder cancer, fortunately, is very, very rare. Um, And it's often associated with much larger stones and and someone significantly older. So it's um, terrible cancer related to gallstones, but fortunately, very, very rare. But all the more reason, if there's any question... 
just get the ultrasound. The ultrasound is no radiation, no pain. It's sound waves. Uh, certainly a, a really great test to fall back on. And even if you get it, sometimes we see a polyp or a little benign growth in the gallbladder. And if we see that, we ask the patient to come back once a year to make sure it doesn't grow. Because if it gets to the point of a centimeter, which might not sound like a lot, but that is our marker when you agree that we say, even though it looks benign, it has more potential to go to cancer and we're gonna say adios to the gallbladder. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our final segment with Dr. Karen Chanaki. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. And we're back in our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, and we call this segment Your Weekly Prescription, brought to you by our friends at Genentech. Dr. Karen Chanaki, you are a walking encyclopedia with all things surgery, but this has been a great discussion about gallstones and gallstone disease. What is your take-home message for our listeners? So I would love for patients to remember, or for your listeners to remember that um, just because you have gallstones doesn't mean that you're going to need to have your gallbladder out. So if you have an x-ray or CAT scan or some study done for some other reason, and you're told that you have gallstones, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have surgery. So please keep that in mind. And then certainly keep in mind the symptoms of gallbladder disease. So if you start to develop pain in the center of your abdomen, pain that goes off to your right upper abdomen or into your back or your shoulder, nausea, vomiting, bloating, distension, just a general bad feeling in your abdomen, keep in mind gallstones. Certainly talk to your doctor about it. And if they're concerned about gallstones, the most important test to get would be an ultrasound. That's what we would recommend that you start. Mm -hmm. And as you say, an ounce of prevention. If you've had one episode, maybe you'll be lucky and it will never happen again. But if you have more than one episode, you really want to think long and hard about getting surgery because of all the possible uh, directions in which it could gallop. It just, you're lucky if it just irritates your gallbladder, but if it affects your liver, it affects your pancreas, um, you can become, it can become a life-threatening situation. Fortunately, as you say, pancreatitis is not an outcome that often. Um, And again, if you've had your gallbladder removed and now you have heartburn and the usual therapy isn't working, it may be bioreflux. And uh, I guess you see patients that have that pretty often, yes? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, again, working with in combination with your surgeon and your GI doctor, that's certainly something to consider. And that can most often be managed with medication and avoid any further surgery. Yeah, actually very easy to manage. 
Karen, if somebody wanted to see you as a patient or they have uh, they want a second opinion, how would they find you at Jefferson? Sure. Well, we're always happy to meet anybody at Jefferson. And our phone number in our general surgical office is 215-955-8666. And you can certainly Google Thomas Jefferson University in the Department of Surgery, and that'll bring up the number of surgeons here at Jefferson who offer gallbladder surgery and uh, would welcome the opportunity to meet. And if people forget the number... 1-800-JEFF-NOW and ask for general surgery and Dr. Karen Janaki. I want to just add, I can't think of anybody more deserving to be the Francis E. Rosado Professor of Surgery. Dr. Rosado came to Jefferson when I was a junior medical student, a scholar and a gentleman, and you deserve that. He was wonderful, as are you, and I thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Marianne. This is great. And now for your real champion. I call this segment, Do It Anyway. Happy January, the month when the calendar flips. And for a moment, we look back and take stock on the year that's fading into the past, then turn our focus on our hopes and goals for the year ahead. Some people get a little nervous, while others see it as an opportunity, a chance to start fresh. Some even say 12 new chapters with 365 new pages. Each of us has a very special plan for the months ahead. Maybe you'll commit to a new habit, learn a new language or skill, or just be more efficient. Or maybe you'll pledge to be kinder, more thoughtful, and more generous. In 1976, Philadelphia hosted a major event called the 41st Eucharistic Congress, which brought Catholics from around the world. The goal? To examine the physical and spiritual hungers of the human family. This event dates back to 1881 with a one-day congress in Lyle, France with 800 people. In 1976, there were over 1.5 million people, including 44 cardinals, 417 bishops from around the world, and a candlelight procession on the parkway with more than 350,000 pilgrims. As a college student, I was fortunate enough to be an usher for some of those week-long events at the Civic Center. How special to hear a speech by Mother Teresa. She was born in Macedonia to Albanian parents in 1910 and was so fascinated by stories of missionaries, she felt the call to serve by the age of 12. Her mother often invited the city's destitute to dine with their family. At age 18, she joined a community of Irish nuns with missions in India. For several years, she taught high school in India, but was so moved by the suffering and poverty outside the convent walls, she left the school to devote herself to working among the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta. In her words, the unwanted, the unloved, the uncared for. By age 40, she began her own order, the Missionaries of Charity, and replaced her traditional habit with a symbolic, simple white sari with a blue border. And by 2012, had 4,500 nuns in 123 countries, managing homes for people dying of AIDS, leprosy, and TB. They also ran soup kitchens, mobile clinics, family clinics, and orphanages. Not without critics for her strong defense of life, she continued her mission through two heart attacks, malaria, pneumonia, until her death at the age of 87. Let me share a poem that she wrote which has always motivated me. 
written by Mother Teresa and inscribed on the wall of her home for the children of Calcutta. Even if you're not a person of faith, you'll be moved by her words. The poem is called, Do It Anyway. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Mother Teresa was recognized with the 1979 Nobel Peace Prize and named a saint in 2016 and is considered one of the 20th century's greatest humanitarians. In 1976, when I was the college girl who was the usher at the Civic Center and noticed a tiny nun standing in a group of people by the stage, I quickly realized it was Mother Teresa. I quietly walked up behind her just to be in her presence. I wonder if she felt me lightly touch her veil. I didn't want to be disrespectful, but this was a once-in-a-lifetime chance, inches away from a saint. So I decided to do it anyway. We salute you, St. Teresa of Calcutta, your real champion. Thank you for listening to your radio doctor every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. So glad you were able to open the new year with us. Listen to the show again or any of our shows on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com or wherever you get your podcasts. I do have one great New Year's resolution for you. Follow your radio doctor on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Send an email, info at yourradiodoctor.net. Tell us about a topic you'd like us to cover. Tell us about a champion in your family or community. One of my New Year's resolutions is to post more information on our website, yourradiodoctor.net, like today's poem by Mother Teresa, the iconic humanitarian, so you can revisit her words. Make a resolution to practice kindness. You may be that one person who changes everyone around you and spreads it to the whole world. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week and safe year with the ones you love, always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Happy New Year! Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded.
I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. 